70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of Global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. Hello, pendengar KBS World Radio, dimanapun Anda berada. Perkenalkan, nama saya Rudy Hartono dari Kalimantan Barat. Hello, KBS World Radio listeners all over the world. My name is Rudy Hatono. I live in Kalimantan in Western Indonesia. I was deeply touched by the journey KBS World Radio took in becoming a station loved by all generations. I really want to mention how popular KBS World Radio is where I am. KBS World Radio's websites and social media accounts are especially a big source of inspiration. I think it provided its listeners with a variety of listening options by making a timely transition to new platforms in this day and age of ever-evolving technologies. I wish you will continue to please your listeners through great programs. Warm greetings from Indonesia. Dari Kalimantan, Indonesia. 70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. It is the 3rd of March, and welcome to our Friday edition of Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon jang South Korea and the U.S. have announced the resumption of the combined springtime military exercise called Freedom Shield later this month. It will be taking place for the first time in five years. We'll have more in news briefing shortly. Last week marked the one-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine. We discussed the current status of the war and the possibility of a Korean-style armistice to end the fighting. And on Movie Spotlight, we discuss a couple of local thrillers, The Devil's Deal and Unlocked. Let's begin, Career 24. Korea 24. The Rock U.S. will conduct the Freedom Shield exercise to strengthen combined defense, defensive posture for 11 days from March 13th through the 23rd. Those were remarks by South Korea's Joint Chiefs of Staff spokesperson Colonel Lee Sung-jun and the U.S. Forces Korea spokesperson Colonel Isaac Taylor during a news briefing held at the Defense Ministry in Seoul on Friday. For the first time in five years, South Korea and the U.S. are reviving their massive springtime military exercises amid heightening nuclear threats from North Korea. Our KBS World Radio news editor, Koo Hee-jin, joins us in the studio to tell us more about those expanded drills, as well as our other headlines of the day. Hee-jin, hello. Hello, jang Now, the resumption of full-scale combined field manoeuvres reverses a downscaling from 2018 under the Moon Jae-in administration, which reflected a now fleeting sense of reconciliation on the Korean Peninsula at the time. So now that they are returning, what are they going to involve? 
Well, in a joint briefing on Friday, the militaries of South Korea and the US pl- announced their plan to conduct the Freedom Shield exercises from March 13th to the 23rd, as well as over 20 field training exercises. The full eagle uh, exercise was suspended in 2019 as the previous Moon administration in Seoul sought to reduce military tensions with the North, which had strongly objected to the participation of US aircraft carriers and nuclear-powered submarines in previous drills. The sideline manoeuvres later this month will include the teak knife exercise, a surgical strike drill involving commandos and precision-guided assets. The announcement came in the face of warnings from Pyongyang that Seoul and Washington would face unprecedented military actions should they press ahead with their combined drills. Defence authorities here have already said that the Freedom Shield will be based on realistic scenarios involving the North's high-intensity nuclear threats. Yes, in Washington, the U.S. Uh, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, meanwhile, made comments about the situation on the peninsula. He said the Pentagon will remain vigilant against dangers including North Korea, Iran and global terrorist organizations. Can you expand on those remarks for us? Well, Austin made the remarks in a memo to all Defense Department officials on Thursday, vowing that the U.S. will continue to respond to North Korean provocations in close coordination with South Korea, Japan and other allies and partners. Calling North Korea and Iran advanced and persistent threats, the defense chief said that the U.S. will counter unmanned aerial systems that threaten the U.S. homeland or its forces around the world. Uh, Regarding China, Austin said that it is more aggressively attempting to influence the international rule-based system to suit its authoritarian preferences. He said that the U.S. is strengthening its deterrence posture in the Indo-Pacific by developing new concepts and capabilities, uh, deepening its alliances and partnerships and expanding its activities and operations. Meanwhile, a top North Korean diplomat at the UN said that the regime will never give up its nuclear deterrence and its journey towards nuclear armament will continue. What else did he say? Well, Chu Yongchal, a councillor at the North's permanent mission to the UN office in Geneva, Switzerland, made the remarks on Thursday during a session of the UN-sponsored conference on disarmament. Chu said that his country will not respond to any negotiations that ask the North to denuclearize first. He said that the North's measures to enhance its defensive power are a legitimate exercise of its right to self-defense, claiming that there is no provision in the UN Charter classifying ballistic missile launches as a threat to international peace and security. The envoy exercised the right of reply in the meeting as the US, South Korea and other countries called on the North to stop nuclear tests and ballistic missile launches. The North Korean official counted that South Korea and the US conduct various military exercises every year that he claimed pose a serious threat to the North's security, adding that the Western countries should condemn the two countries for escalating military tensions on the Korean peninsula. Yes, so the rhetoric continues to ramp up. Let's continue on to some of our other headlines now. The main opposition Democratic Party chair, Lee Jae-myung, has flatly denied allegations that he made false statements during his presidential campaign in 2021. So what statements are we referring to here? 
Well, in the opening hearing of the trial at Seoul Central District Court, Yi's defense team said that the DP chief's prior assertion that he did not know Kim Moon-gi, a deceased ex-official of the Songnam municipal developer involved in a massive land development scandal, does not constitute a false statement. Speaking on behalf of E, who was present in court as required for this stage of a trial, the lawyers asserted that it was not inherently false to claim that E did not know Kim, even if they had met on some occasions, contending that the degree to which someone knows another cannot be based solely on the number of encounters. The defence team argued that the standard for knowing someone is relative. The team added that the city of Songnam has some 2,500 public officials, 600 of whom hold the same rank that Kim did. Let's turn to other news as well. Health authorities will begin discussions on the last remaining quarantine measures amid a slowdown in the latest wave of COVID-19 infections. Can you tell us more? Well, Health and Welfare Minister Chu Gyeong-ho announced on the plan on Friday during a meeting saying that the government has taken steps towards resuming normal daily routines in consideration of virus containment and the country's medical capacity. The minister said that the government will now discuss lowering the alert status for the pandemic and downgrading the virus in the four-tier infectious control system, as well as adjusting the seven-day quarantine requirement and fully lifting the indoor mask mandate. COVID-19 is currently classified as a level two disease and mask wearing is still mandatory for some indoor locations, including public transportation and hospitals. Meanwhile, the group of 20 foreign ministers meeting in New Delhi ended without a joint statement on Thursday amid a deep divide over the war in Ukraine. Can you elaborate? Well, according to Reuters, China and Russia opposed the condemnation of the Russian-led war in a draft that was endorsed by most member states, uh, resulting in the release of only a summary and outcome uh, by the chair, uh, current chair, India. During the foreign minister's meeting, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said the forum was ruined by Russia's unjustified invasion of Ukraine. He urged Moscow to extend the Black Sea Grain Initiative to allow the export of Ukrainian grain via the Black Sea past the expiration date of March 18th. German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock called on Moscow to fully restore compliance with the new strategic arms reduction treaty, New START, in which the US and Russia agreed in 2010 to limit the number of nuclear warheads they possess. We'll wrap it up there for our news briefing today. Thank you for those updates. Thank you. Last Friday marked a year since Russian troops crossed the border into Ukraine and started a war that has had ramifications across the globe. Despite initial predictions that Ukraine would quickly fall to Russian forces, Kiev has held its ground. Now, neither Russian leader Vladimir Putin nor Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky shows any signs of backing down and progress in negotiations seems to be at a standstill as well. To take a closer look at this situation as the war moves into its second year, we have joining us on the line now, Professor Mason Ritchie, a social professor of international politics at Hungary University of Foreign Studies. 
Professor, hello. Thanks for being on the show again. Hi, thanks for having me. So a grim milestone was passed this week, a year since Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine. Uh, First off, Professor, how would you describe the current state of the war? Where do the two sides stand at the moment? Yeah, so, you know, the description that I would give right now is that we're in a sort of grinding stalemate uh, in Ukraine, uh, unfortunately. Uh, Russia uh, currently controls, uh, it seems to be at least based off of um, the the data that we have access to, uh, somewhere around 15% um, of uh, Ukrainian territory now controls here, maybe a relatively... um, uh, loosely interpreted uh, word, but it controls more or less around 15% um, of Ukrainian territory. Um, all of that um, in the south and east, uh, including obviously um, Crimea. Uh, but in order to have achieved that, uh, you know, Russia has really you know, had to recreate the sort of meat grinder wars uh, that we have known from the 20th century. Mm. Uh, The Russian military has uh, undergone tremendous losses. Um, It looks like at least 100,000 within the first year, um, either uh, killed or uh, or injured. Uh, And then on the Ukrainian side, obviously, there are uh, terrible Ukrainian military losses, plus the civilian suffering that has come from artillery shelling uh, from uh, Russia, uh, as well as the economic deprivations uh, that have come along with this war as well. Uh, So it is uh, really uh, an incredibly nasty situation and one that uh, unfortunately seems to be, uh, if not perhaps stalemated, uh, grinding along very slowly with both both sides. Um, making uh, the occasional um, small breakthrough, but nothing decisive. Yes, the war has uh, taken a huge toll on both sides, and it is at a point now where it is in this ugly grinding situation, as you've described. Where are we in terms of negotiations? Why have they failed so far? Uh, well, we don't really have any negotiations at all, and you know the short answer to that is because Russia refuses to do the thing that it very clearly ought to do, both for its own national interest as well as for inter- you know, the the idea of upholding international law, and that is to remove all of its troops from Ukrainian territory, including Crimea, immediately. Uh, now, that's uh, an answer that some people may not find very satisfactory because it seems to rest on uh, 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 an, a seeming impossibility, which is that Russia would consider doing so, and perhaps those people are correct. So another way to answer that question is to say that both Russia and Ukraine in their own ways have maximalist demands. Uh, Russia wants to illegally annex through a horrific invasion uh, in a blatant uh, violation of Ukrainian sovereignty in an absolutely gruesome uh, fashion, uh, Ukrainian territory. Uh, And it uh, seems to have decided, and its leadership seems to have decided, that this is uh, a a necessary part of uh, both regime survival and uh, national interest. Uh, and it doesn't seem to want to negotiate for anything less than that maximalist demand. 
and then on the Ukrainian side, uh, Zelensky uh, and his government uh, are currently demanding that Russia pull all of their troops uh, out of Ukraine, in addition to a bunch of other conditions as well. So right now there's no, no negotiating space because both sides have maximalist demands. And I'll just simply say here, Ukraine's maximalist demands are supported both morally and by international law, whereas Russia's clearly are not. Right. Talking about that uh, international uh, support, U.S. President Joe Biden made an unannounced visit to Kiev last week, Monday, which uh, stunned the world. Uh, During the highly secretive visit, Biden met with uh, Zelensky and announced a half a billion dollars of additional assistance to Ukraine. And then last Friday, the Biden administration authorized two billion dollars in aid to Ukraine in an effort to bolster their war effort as well. So the U.S. continues to show that they are backing Ukraine. Meanwhile, the U.S. and Western nations slapped additional sanctions on Russia last Friday as well. But, Professor, are these efforts, particularly the sanctions, are they making a difference? So this is a very difficult question to answer. Uh, And uh, I think I would start by saying that uh, countries in general... Uh, and this is, I think, especially true for large countries uh, such as Russia, uh, have a significant capacity to absorb uh, the losses that come along with uh, significant uh, international sanctions. Um, And so I don't think that anyone should have any illusions that sanctions alone uh, would bring uh, Russia to the point where it would have to or you know, feel that it's in its interest to uh, withdraw from Ukraine. Uh, it will re- require essentially uh, Ukraine uh, with uh, support uh, from the international community uh, getting significant enough victories on the battlefield that uh, Ukraine and Russia could come to the negotiating table uh, but sanctions in the long term, of course, uh, will uh, uh, in, you know, hinder Russia's ability to remain a great power. In fact, at this point, it's arguable that they're a great power at all. If they didn't have nuclear weapons, I don't think we would even consider Russia a, a great power, given its declining population, its GDP statistics, uh, and you know, its uh, lack of an defense and in, industrial base and a defense industrial base that is uh, up to the standards uh, of the contemporary world. Mm. Uh, And that gap is simply going to get bigger between the United States and Russia or between China and Russia or between any other major power and Russia as long as those sanctions remain in place. So in the long run, those sanctions are going to affect Russia. The open question, I think, in the the short to medium term is to what extent are those sanctions going to put a, a, a crimp in the ability of Moscow uh, to have equipment, uh, materiel, uh, and uh, you know other implements that it's going to need to carry out the war effort in Ukraine. Um, it seems like Russia probably has some capacity to be able to with, to w- absorb those sanctions and continue to carry out uh, the war going forward. But it does seem like there are, for instance, uh, you know uh, shortages of ammunition uh, and other materiel. Uh, Russia can make up probably for some of that, but not all of it. Mm. Uh, And then, of course, the wild card here is China. To what extent is China going to ramp up uh, military support um, for Russia, notably on on lethal aid, artillery shells, ammunition, and other such things? And we don't know the answer to that question right now. Well, seeing as you mentioned China, there was an interesting development last week. Uh, China called for a ceasefire between Russia and Ukraine, releasing a 12-point 
quote unquote peace plan. Uh, the plan includes resuming peace talks,、uh, stopping unilateral sanctions, and preventing the use of nuclear weapons. It was cautiously welcomed by Kiev, but、uh, dismissed by U.S. and EU officials. What do you make of the Chinese plan? I think cautiously is doing a lot of work in that sentence. To be honest with you,、um, I, I don't really perhaps read that exactly the same way. I think Ukraine、uh, wishes that China would match its rhetoric in this peace plan with the reality of its actions and its support for Russia. And in that sense, they welcome the peace plan.、Uh, but I think that there's no illusion in, in Kiev that China in, has indicated that it will do that. Uh, the fact of the matter is, this 12-point peace plan uh, is uh, r- really、uh, a document that can be boiled down to one point, and it's the very first point among those 12, and that is respecting the sovereignty of all countries. And if China were serious about this peace plan, China would put tremendous pressure, along with the U.S. and the rest of the international community, on Russia to withdraw its troops immediately from Ukraine. That would be respecting the sovereignty of all countries. China, however, has not indicated that it's doing that, and that I think gives the lie to the rest of the document. Obviously, some of the rest of the things in there are are nice to hear. Uh, ceasing hostilities, I think、uh, we can all agree that that would probably be a good thing. Resuming peace talks again under the right conditions,、mm. that would be something that would be welcome to see. Although I don't think that Ukraine, frankly speaking, sh- you know, can enter into these types of peace talks without coming to the table from a position of strength. Otherwise, it's simply going to be、mm. uh, allowing itself to be dismembered.、Uh, resolving the humanitarian crisis, obviously, we want to see the humanitarian crisis there, you know, ameliorated to the extent possible. Protecting civilians. Prisoners of war,、um, reducing strategic risk, for instance, nuclear weapons use,、uh, helping Ukraine with grain exports. Those are all positive.、Um, protecting prisoners of war、uh, and, and civilian rights. Again, those are significant and important. Although, again, where is China in terms of putting pressure? Uh, on Russia、mm. uh, to push back against its uh, illegal uh, violations of the law of war,、uh, in terms of its、uh, artillery shelling of、uh, counter values, that is to say, city you know human targets、uh, all throughout Ukraine. So you know China isn't doing what it says its peace plan is supposed to do. So until China moves. More towards the direction where its its action follows its rhetoric. This is not a peace plan that be, can be taken seriously. Indeed. Well, in searching for a solution, some analysts have floated the idea of the Korean War armistice when it comes to the end of the war in Ukraine. What do you make of this idea? Do you think a Korean-style armistice could end the Russia-Ukraine war? So, like, just explain the files. The two Koreas are still technically at war、okay. uh, since the Korean War ended、uh, with an armistice.、Uh, it's not a peace treaty. Twenty twenty-three, in fact, marks the seventieth anniversary of the armistice agreement. But、uh, while tensions have remained and incidents have occurred, for the most part, the two sides have kept themselves apart. There's been no、uh, further encroachment on territory. So, what do you think of this plan? So I think, as a desirable outcome,、uh, it's uh, actually terrible.、Um, you know, I, as you know, as the listeners out there you know, may know, I, I live in Korea.、Uh, I'm quite aware of the the downsides and the negatives of a divided Korea, and they are significant.、Uh, it is a violent. 
uh, thing to do to a state to partition it uh, in this way. So as a desirable outcome, I don't think it's good. You know, clearly the outcome that one would want to see would be a fully integral Ukraine under uh, uh, the leadership uh, and under the sovereignty of Kiev. That being said, the world unfortunately sometimes doesn't turn out the way or many times doesn't turn out the way that we would want it to turn out. Uh, and I think that it is uh, not at all impossible. In fact, it is very possible that we may end up in a situation at the end of this war that might look something like the uh, the ceasefire that took place at the end of the Korean War, which, as you correctly mentioned, did not result in the end of war, uh, but rather a, a ceasefire. There was no formal no formal peace treaty signed, uh, and that ultimately uh, we may find that there are parts of uh, Ukraine which are going to be partitioned off uh, in the south and east and, and Crimea from the rest of Ukraine. I think that this would be a, a catastrophe for Ukraine. It would be a catastrophe, a catastrophe for the international community. It would have ongoing consequences uh, over the next decades, just like we've seen the consequences of North Korea and South Korea uh, being neighbors with each other, one mm. of which has included North Korea developing nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, any number of you know, possible near-miss war events uh, over the last uh, seven decades. Right. So you know, just because you have this partition uh, of Ukraine doesn't mean that it will be stable going forward. In fact, it would be asking for a flare-up of warfare uh, at any time. Sure. So it clearly would not be a desirable outcome, but indeed it may be the way that the war grinds to a halt. So very briefly, do you think that will be the most likely outcome then? How will this war end, do you think? Um, boy, that is, a, again, a very difficult question to answer. Uh, you know, It does seem that when we look at the dynamic um, of the war, uh, right now, uh, I think there are two things that are noticeable. Um, the first one is uh, Russia has lost a significant amount of the territory that it initially gained in its first offensive in March of 2022. So the overall dynamic has been Russia being pushed back into the south and east. On the other hand, it mm. does uh, you know, now control uh, territory in Luhansk, Donetsk, Zaporizhia, Kherson, uh, that it did not have um, control over uh, militarily um, prior to um, you know prior to March, and it is going to defend at the very least those gains um, with every bit of effort that it can muster, and so I think in the, that therefore the second point is this war I don't think is going to end quickly. I think mm. that we are in a very significant um, risk of this war. Um, being quite protracted, perhaps even in some form or other for years. I could be wrong. It could be ended next week, but I find that very unlikely. Sure. I think it's actually going to be something that drags on for quite some time. And indeed, much like the Korean War, it is entirely possible that both sides simply uh, agree to stop fighting out of sheer exhaustion. Uh, and I could imagine that that might well be one of the most likely scenarios by which this conflict uh, comes to a halt. We'll have to wrap it up there. We'll be speaking to Professor Mason Ritchie from the Hangul University of Foreign Studies. Thank you for your time today. Great. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index rose 4.22 points, or 0.17% on Friday, to close the week at 2,432.07. The tech-heavy KOSDAQ also rose, gaining 15.23 points, or 1.93%, 
to close at 802.42. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 14-1 against the US dollar, closing at 1,301.61. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. Next up, it's Korea Trending, our daily segment where we take a look at some of the other news headlines that have been trending today. And for that, we have joining us in the studio now, Walter Lee. Walter, hello. It's good to see you. Hi, j a n g It's always good to be here. OK, a y we are jumping straight into our stories again today. Walter, what do you have for us first? Right, so new data has found that the prevalence of obesity among middle and high schoolers in South Korea more than doubled during the past decade. In particular, one out of 5.7 teenage boys were found to be overweight. Now, according to the Korea Disease Control and Prevention Agency, or KDCA, on Friday, the obesity rate among such teens increased 2.4-fold between 2011 and 2021, from 5.6% to 13.5%. Now, for males, male students, the rate climbed from 6.8% to 17.5%, while the figure for females jumped from around 4% to roughly 9%. Yes, that is a concerning trend. Did the results find that the obesity rate also increased for children and adults as well? Yeah, it did. So for children and adolescents aged between 6 and 18, the rate increased to 16.2% between 2019 and 2021. By comparison, the figure stood at 10.2% between 2010 and 2012. Now, meanwhile, the agency found that as of the end of 2021, around 37% of adults aged 19 or over are living with the disease, up to 5.7 percentage points from a decade before. OK, a y and I presume the latest data has been brought to light as Saturday will mark World Obesity Day. Yeah, you're correct. So the day, which was first marked in 2015, is organised by the non-profit World Obesity Federation, whose mission is to promote global efforts to reduce, prevent and treat the disease. The Federation has set the theme for this year's campaign as changing perspectives. Let's talk about obesity. Yes, the data certainly paints a troubling picture for Korea, and it does indeed look like a trend that needs to be talked about. OK, a y let's uh, move on to our second story. What do you have for us? Yeah, so new stories surrounding the South Korean actor Yoo Ah-in have been trending in the country every day since it was revealed that he was habitually using propofol, a, psycho- a psychotropic drug, last month. Now, today we have more information as it's been reported that the actor was warned by hospitals about overusing the sedative. So on Thursday, a local news outlet aired an interview with a doctor who had treated the actor. In the interview, the doctor said he had warned the actor about getting anesthesia too many times and also expressed concern about you going to various hospitals to get the intravenous and anesthetic agent. Now, a source close to you explained that the actor who suffered skin problems had sought anesthesia because he, he has a stream fear of needles which are often used to, for skin treatment. Mm, I don't believe fear of needles can be used as a legal d e f e n s e But anyhow, uh, how often did you use Propofol to have doctors so worried? OK, a y so according to the Seoul Metropolitan Police Agency, you was prescribed Propofol more than 100 times between 2021 and 2022. In 2021 alone, he received around 4,400 millimetres of the agent over 73 courses. And last year, he was administered the drug 30 times. This means that he was prescribed Propofol around 6 times per month in 2021 and two to three times a month last year. That's far more than the once per month amount recommended by the government. Indeed, it suggests that there was a quite a concerning level of dependency on the drug. 
Meanwhile, that's not the only drug that was in his system, according to police investigations, right? That's correct. So police have so far confirmed that you tested positive for cocaine and dissociated and the dissociative anesthetic ketamine, in addition to propofol and marijuana. Now, this comes after the police have requested the National Forensic Services to conduct drug tests during uh, using hair and urine samples from you shortly after the actor returned from the U.S. on February 5th. Now, once they wrap up their probe, police plan to summon you for questioning as a suspect. Yes, this is turning into a huge scandal in the entertainment industry and one that will have significant ramifications as he had been involved in several films and TV productions. It's becoming a huge disappointment for his fans, especially as yes. well. OK, a y let's uh, move on to our final story. What do you have for us? Yeah, so a North Korean YouTuber recently posted a video of her trying the popular dish Pyongyang Trey cold noodles at a famous restaurant in the North Capital. The one-and-a-half-minute clip was uploaded on the YouTube channel called Olivia Natasha Yumi Space DPRK Daily last Saturday. DPRK is the official name of the North and stands for the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Now, since creating her channel last June, Yumi Speaking in English has introduced stores and tourist spots frequented by locals. The latest clip, however, featured only captions in Korean and English. Yes, before we continue, we should point out that this channel, while it claims to show vlogs of uh, everyday life in North Korea, mm-hmm. it is widely acknowledged that these are carefully staged propaganda videos right. by the regime and they should not be trusted. But the channel has attracted a lot of views with people curious to even get a glimpse into the reclusive state. So with that in mind, tell us some more about this latest video then. What is the restaurant that Yumi visited? Yeah, so she visited the very popular Ongnyuguan, an establishment highly recognized by the regime. Now, Lee Il-hwan, a senior member of the North's ruling party, even attended a ceremony marking the restaurant's 60th anniversary in September 2020 and personally delivered a congratulatory message. Now, former South Korean presidents Kim Dae-jung, No Mu-hyun and Moon Jae-in had all had meals there at Ongnyuguan after holding inter-Korean summits. Yes, I understand that the dish that Yumi tried was originally something that only royals had. Yeah, that's correct. But instead of the original dish that uses beef, this updated Pyongyang tray cold noodles dish uses chicken, which is more affordable. It is known that the North's former leader, Kim Jong-il, introduced this version in 1999 so that the public would be able to enjoy the dish once eaten only by royals. In the clip, Yumi first mixes the various ingredients with a very large portion of noodles. And the caption reads, it is enough to make a cat speak. Yes, it looks like it's trying to show that food in North Korea is plentiful, but we know that that is not the case for much of the country. Yes. OK, a y we'll wrap it up there for today's Korea Trending. Thank you for those stories, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. We've come now to Movie Spotlight, our weekly feature reviewing the latest releases at the Korean box office and online. And joining me now for that in the critics' chair, it is just one critic this week. It is the ever-effervescent Jason b e r s h e v a s Jason, hello. It's great to see you. Hello, Jango. Uh, absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you. Okay, so two local releases to sink our teeth into this week. The first is this week's major release. It is a political thriller called The Devil's Deal. The title in Korean is t e w e b i It stars uh, Jo Jin-ung and Lee Sang-min and Kim Mu-yeol. Jason, can you tell us more? From what I know, I understand it is 
a quite a dark film, right? It is a bit. Um, it's directed by E. Won Tae. Uh, he helmed the gangster, the cop, uh, the devil that went to um, Cannes in 2019. And that was the year, of course, that Parasite won the Palme d'Or. Uh, he also directed Man of Will, starring Jo jung And uh, he's reunited uh, here with the director, um and uh, yeah this film basically Chojungun plays this uh, aspiring politician uh, called John Hae-wong uh, in Busan in the 1990s you know the 1990s is often um a period where the directors like to depict <laughs> and uh, that's very much true here now he this particular character believes he will secure uh, the party nomination to run for a seat in the national assembly uh, but an influential power broker played by Lee Sung Min in the world of politics has other plans. So in response, uh, Cho Jung-un's character gets hold of confidential plans regarding a redevelopment project. So real estate <laughs> very much uh, plays a role in his film. And yes, so, a very topical uh, subject. As ever, as ever. <laughs> and uh, he collaborates with uh, a gang boss played by Kim Yul. Are you still with me? <laughs> to run as an independent. Now that doesn't go particularly well and uh, it sets off a never-ending kind of political game. Uh, with all the players kind of getting involved in corruption, uh, murder and other kind of nefarious scheming. Uh, it was actually filmed in 2021. So this is one of the films that uh, has been waiting to get released for some time. You know, one mm. of the 80 or so titles that were delayed owing to the, the pandemic. Screened at a couple of film festivals, including Hawaii. Uh, International Film Festival, also Fantastic Fest as well, you know, that has a strong appetite for genre cinema, so I can see why they were keen on screening this film. Yes, there has been quite a popular subgenre of political thrillers slash dramas over yeah. the years in Korea, right? Uh, how does this compare? Yeah, you kind of go back to Inside Men, which I think um, that is a really good film. It's directed by Lee Min-woo, and uh, that film was this kind of big sleeper hit. Uh, you know, features a prosecutor, a henchman, a journalist, and, you know, politicians. And, it, you know, it was a significant film. You know, it sold, you know, 7 million tickets. It is the most successful R-rating a rated Korean film. Uh, and basically it started off a series of other films, uh, you know, as Asura, The City of Mad- uh, Madness, starring jong un mm. uh, And speaking of jong un he was also in The King, you know, which looks at prosecutors and the relationship between prosecutors and, and politics. Um, and, you know, what all these films share in common is that they are very, very male-dominated. Sure. Uh, and the feature characters are either prosecutors, uh, politicians, or, you know, journalists, and sometimes, you know, a combination of all three. Uh, another film that's worth mentioning is Kangnam Blues uh, that was released in 2015. That looks at... Uh, the relationship between real estate and politicians and various other things. So, you know, The Devil's Deal is kind of part of this trend. I think, in a sense, it is very much, you know, the same thing, I would say. It's a repetition. You know, we've seen it before. I don't think it really sheds any, you know, new light or perspective. Uh, you know, power corrupts the mind and soul. And so these characters, you know, I think the thing I liked about Inside Men was it, it very much reveals this kind of, you know, frankly speaking, ugly world of of greed and power and just just all this scheming Mm. and you know retribution but the sense of it was this 
Ibn Un character that, you know, I think audiences had, you know, could empathize with. But in some of these other films, particularly Asura and also here, The Devil's Deal, these characters are just just not particularly likable. So you <laughs> well, got the, I see. You, you got the Jo Jung Un character who we do, you know, as I was watching, you certainly do feel some kind of uh, empathy for. But, you know, as he kind of gets because of the situation he's in he's kind of you know he's forcing his hand and you know there goes his soul and uh yeah you know by the end of it you don't particularly have much affection for him so uh you know it, it's not a particularly you know I guess it's not a film that has a happy ending. And I'm not really revealing a major spoiler, but um, yeah, I mean, I think some audiences might struggle with the fact that it doesn't, you come out feeling somewhat, uh, you know, frustrated, you know, that it, it doesn't, I mean, yeah, sure. It tackles a quite, you know, a serious issue, but I don't think, um, I think sometimes people go into the cinema to, yeah, sometimes it's escapism, but sometimes it's to enjoy a film and to Mm. kind of connect with characters. And I think perhaps audiences might struggle here. Right. So unfortunately, it doesn't provide anything new. And at the same time, it doesn't provide any sort of empathetic characters that you can root for. That's right. And it's it's also very much male driven. There's Mm. there's two female characters in the film. One of them is the wife of of the, the, the aspiring politician and the other is a journalist. And they're pretty much, you know, insignificant. And I think it's a real shame. And um, especially the journalist character, who I thought was a more interesting character in the film. But, you know, uh, I don't want to say too much more. But, yeah, sure. it's, it, it, but it's, again, it's one of these kind of very kind of male-driven narratives that I wish that we saw less of. How do you think it will fare among audiences in Korea at the moment, though? Especially, as we said, it is quite topical some of these themes about uh, political corruption real estate scandals yeah. <laughs> and all sorts yeah no, even though it was like released well I say it was it was made you know 2021 it very much kind of resonates today with mm. some of the some of the news um, it opened pretty well actually it opened with 188,000 missions on Wednesday which is pretty good uh, given the current you know situation in the film industry where you know people are being very careful about you know when they're watching a film uh, having to spend, you know, you know, quite a lot of money on a cinema ticket, and uh, yeah, the first slam dunk, you know, this is the Japanese anime that's been number one for many, many, uh, yeah, several weeks now. It was, it was forced uh, into second place. So, but the problem is the reaction hasn't been particularly strong. Kind of reminded me of Asura, which mm. opened really, really strongly, had a big cast, you know, Hwa Jung-ming and Jong Song. But then it just tanked, you know, in the second and third week. And uh, the reaction here, I think just going back to what I said earlier, I think it just makes audiences feel somewhat deflated. You know, it's it's hard to really kind of connect with the film. Um and because it, you know, it's it is quite dark. Although it is, it is worth mentioning. It's a fifteen-rated film. It's not eighteen. It's not mm. like super violent or anything like that. But, uh, but it is well made. I'll, I'll give the director credit. It's, it's you know, the cinematography is good. Wasn't over overly keen on the soundtrack. The acting is solid. But again, sure. you know, these these are you know these are actors. Lee Sung Min, sure. Jo Jung you know, they've played these characters before. So just a bit grim, really. Yeah, grim okay. is a good adjective. So that was The Devil's Deal. Uh, we're now moving into a streaming title to talk about today, uh, as it is a release that has topped the Netflix global film chart That's for right. non-English films. It's called Unlocked. The original Korean title is far more verbose. Smartphone을 떨어뜨렸을 뿐인데. And it stars uh, John Wee and Im Shiwan. 
Jason, I understand that it's a film about identity theft. That's right, and it's another thriller. <laughs> no shortage of Korean thrillers. <laughs> and so, yeah, identity theft is a theme that I think has been tackled more recently in Korean films. On the Line, for example, uh, that was released in 2020, uh, that tackled this theme, focusing on a voice, I think it's 2021, actually, voice phishing scheme uh, starring Kim Myol, uh, who is in The Devil's Deal. Now, Unlocked is it's a really simple concept. Chan Chanui plays this character. She She's... She's having a night out, she gets quite drunk, and then she, she loses her phone. Uh, and then uh, she, she manages to get it back, but uh, unfortunately, by which, at which point it's been cloned. Uh, and, and she doesn't realise initially, uh, but yeah, someone's getting access to all her accounts. And uh, it basically, her life grinds to a halt, because the person who... Uh, takes the phone is is basically he's a serial killer you know he's not someone you want uh, <laughs> access to your phone uh and uh so uh, yeah no it's i mean it's it's an okay film uh it starts channel like i said uh she's she's pretty good as as a central lead it's directed by kim tomes his featured debut he's worked on films such as confession and, and office uh, im shi won is plays the villain similar kind of role that he played in uh, emergency declaration that awful film set on a plane also stars Kim Ae-won mm. sorry Kim Hee-won and based on the Japanese novel Stolen Identity by Akira Singer that was adapted into two Japanese films okay so it has been a hit as we said on Netflix yep. it seems so what do you make of that yeah it's okay uh it's uh, it's doing pretty well on Netflix I can see why I think it resonates you know uh I think we all you know do stuff like, well, not only do we do a lot on a phone we do everything on a phone indeed from from banking to you know social media to you know to you know searching on the internet to connecting with friends and family you know there's so much information on a phone that's pretty scary uh that if someone gets access to that then you know your life uh, you, yeah like I said earlier to the, uh, the it can grind to a, a real halt, and um, and yeah, no, I think it, it's. Okay. I mean, the set pieces are okay. I think the problem with this movie, though, is it just it's very much reliant on cliches. Mm. Uh, you know, you've got this uh, serial killer who's you know you see him kind of going through her phone, and uh, and, and you see these you know. He's, he's been killing people for several you know for over a period of time and that there's a backstory there and yeah we've seen this again all before but i think it just kind of throws in this kind of contemporary issue uh and i think it could dig a, de a bit deeper but uh, yeah it's very much kind of reliant on those genre tropes and to be fair i think some viewers will find those pretty effective Okay, we are out of time, so we have to leave it there. So that was Unlocked. It's available now to stream on Netflix. That's all for Movie Spotlight. Jason, thank you for your reviews. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you next time. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Wrapping up the week as usual, it's our Friday segment next week from Seoul, where we look ahead to see what's coming up over the next week. And our staff editor, Richard Larkin, brings us those previews. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. Good to see you too. OK, so what's the first thing we should look out for next week? The ruling People Power Party will hold its national convention on Wednesday, and an important announcement could be made. Leading up to the convention, the party will vote on who will become the next chairman of the PPP, and the candidate with the majority of votes will be announced on Wednesday. 
Mobile votes will be accepted over the weekend, and telephone votes will be counted next Monday and Tuesday. It is worth noting that if no one wins by a majority, then the two top candidates will then battle it out in another race, with results being announced on March 12th. Right, so there'll be a runoff. So we might not have the final result by this time next week. Then, it's an important election, though, that will set the direction for the ruling party ahead of next year's legislative elections. So that's going to be a key headline to look out for. Okay, moving on. What's the next thing we should look out for next week? South Korea's first civilian test launch vehicle, the Hambit TLV, could be launched from the Alcantara Space Center in Brazil as early as next Tuesday. The Hambit TLV is a precursor to the company's planned commercial satellite launcher, the Hambit Nano, which would be capable of carrying a 50-kilogram payload to a 500-kilometer sun-synchronous orbit. The rust schedule is unveiled by the developer of the vehicle, Innerspace, on Thursday, but the precise date of the launch will be finalized after factoring in technical preparations and weather conditions. The 60-meter single-stage test rocket was initially planned to be launched in December last year, but it was postponed three times due to weather conditions and technical glitches. Yeah, what's significant about this launch is that the company InnoSpace is a startup, and they're looking to become the first private uh, commercial satellite launcher. Unlike other space launches we reported before, such as uh, Nuri and Tanuri, hopefully this uh, new launch will go smoothly, and it promises to be another significant step in South Korea's space ambitions. And uh, what's another new story to expect next week? The World Baseball Classic kicks off on Wednesday, and all eyes are on Korea to see how they fare at the tournament. On Wednesday, Korea will play its opening Pool B game against Australia at the Tokyo Dome, and then will play what is seen as one of the biggest games for the country at the WBC against Japan on Friday. That will also be held at Tokyo Dome. In preparation for the big competition, Korea will play two warm-up games against Japanese pro teams: one against the Oryx Buffaloes on Monday, and the next on Tuesday against the Hanshin Tigers. So it will be an exciting week for baseball fans. Indeed, and that's all coming up next week. Richard, thank you for those previews, and we'll see you again on Monday. Thank you. Have a nice weekend. That's our show for today. Join us again on Monday for all of the latest from Korea. Till then, we hope you have a great weekend. I've been your host Kwon Jangwo, and thank you as always for listening. Goodbye. KBS World Radio.